0: Broadcasting on the Drug Truth Network, this is Cultural Baggage. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. War, war, war. War, war, war. My name is Dean Becker. I don't condone or encourage the use of any drugs, legal or illegal. I report the unvarnished truth about the pharmaceutical, banking, prison, and judicial nightmare that feeds on eternal drug war. All right, my friends, welcome to this edition of Cultural Baggage. Now, just when you thought you were getting used to the format of the show, I'm going to change it up just for this week. Here in just a little bit, we'll hear from our main guest for this edition, Mr. Steve Rolls of the British drug reform organization, Transform. We'll not be hearing from any of the Drug Truth Network reporters in this program, but you can hear them online on the Century of Lies program for this week at drugtruth.net. And of course, you won't be hearing Winston Francis and the official government truth, so in his stead... I'm bringing you the voice of our illustrious drug czar, John Walters, as recorded earlier this week and brought to us courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation.
1: He's too much of a politician to tell our government outright its policy for downgrading cannabis is wrong. The U.S. drug czar is in no doubt in his own mind. John P. Walters is a man who believes marijuana is the devil, more or less, that needle exchange programs for addicts are useless, and that anyone who buys drugs, hard or soft, is contributing to the war fought by terrorists. On the home front, he's reduced drug use among the young impressively, but the real battle, as even he admits, is on controlling the supply, not least in Afghanistan. I met up with him this afternoon at the American Embassy.
2: But the real message is that this is a focused problem in the area that's contested by the terrorists, in one province. If we provide security... Again, it's not drug control... Versus security. It's not terror versus eradication. It's about development, security, drug control, anti terror measures altogether. Now, there are still pockets of serious resistance, but those are in lim- less places than they were before as the government takes more and more control no, and has that. real vitality.
1: But realistically, Hamid Karzai controls Kabul, and that's about it. The rest, he doesn't have power over. These are not pockets. This is most of Afghanistan.
2: Well, I think that's not fair. Um, I think when I visited people in uh, Nangahar, when I visited uh, uh, even people uh, uh, last year in in Helmand, there again, I think what you have to see underneath this is that where there is a possibility of allowing people a path for real development, they know that does not lie with terror. They know that it does not lie with narcotics and opium uh, development. They know that it does not lie, lie with warlords. It, it is a future where the allies standing with the Karzai government, the growing capacity of the of the Afghans to govern their own national government, govern their own provincial government, govern their own district government, the capacity to have schools, the capacity now for the first time to have women and men Decide as government representatives in their district, something Afghanistan never had. I like to point out, I recognize it's dicey in, in, in Great Britain, but the United States declared independence in 1776, did not have a constitution until 1789, fought a civil war in the next century, and had a civil rights movement to get the kinds of things that Afghanistan has crunched together in, in about three years from a much, much, much more difficult starting place.
1: At one stage, our forces and our foreign office were offering farmers checks, possibly ones that bounced, if they would destroy their crops. Was that the right way to go three years ago?
2: The effort was to try to stop this as a way of stopping the turning of dollars into guns, into gunslingers, into mafias, into terrorists. So that was one thing tried in a very, very difficult environment it didn't it didn't stop the problem but nobody ever thought it was going to be the long term solution
1: and the point is there are still no viable alternatives for farmers there They are not being encouraged to grow other crops. They're not being encouraged uh, to look for other means of legal farming.
2: The point here is not just to create changes in crops among subsistence farmers. The point is to give them the ability to educate their children, to have electricity for initial uh, businesses, to take and create things like vegetable oils, to have fabrication of of initial manufacturing. That's what they want as a future. That's where we're going. And they understand that opium traps them in dependency and poverty.
1: The other supply headache for Mr. Walters has been cocaine from Colombia. He claims that now he's seen prices going up in the US and purity going down, both signs that perhaps the flow into the country is being stemmed. But at home, his tough federal drugs policy has been a source of dissent with a number of states which have opted for a more lenient approach to soft drugs. I want to look at the domestic level now, uh, you've stressed that the big demon actually is marijuana of the 1.7 million drug arrests each year, half of those are for cannabis, what is the point of chasing those?
2: It's not the demon, it's the reality that today in the United States what I face in trying to plan treatment programs and others is of, of the um, 7 million people in the United States age 12 and above that need treatment because of their use, reaching dependency and abuse levels of illegal drugs. Over 60% are dependent on marijuana. It's the single biggest cause of treatment we need among the illegal drugs. Cocaine is second, but it's less than half as big a cost. For teenagers today, more, more teenagers in the United States are seeking treatment for marijuana dependency than all other illegal drugs combined and more than alcohol for the first time. Marijuana potency has gone up, age of first use has gone down, It's the only drug also that we as, I think both cultures in the UK and the United States say, well, this is a soft drug, don't worry about it. So we need more people to get involved. It's not. What we've learned from the sciences, increasingly even from science in both countries and around the world, it can be a trigger and maybe a worsener for serious mental illness. It is not a drug that doesn't cause addiction and abuse. It is not a drug that doesn't cause the same kind of chemical changes in the brain, we can image for cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and others. And we have not allowed our popular understanding to catch up with the science.
1: Let me ask you what you make of the UK policy then to downgrade cannabis to a class drug
2: Well, I've talked with with U.K. officials. Obviously, this is a sovereign country that's going to make its own decisions. Let me just say what our view, our our experience is. When we reduce the emphasis on the concern and danger of marijuana, we get more marijuana use. Of the 5 million 12- to 17-year-olds in the United States that we estimate have tried marijuana once, 1 million of them have progressed already to need treatment. This is a public health problem that we're trying to make sure people in the blind spot of, uh, of living in the past, cultural images, don't continue to make a bigger problem. Would you
1: see any point in locking up cannabis
2: users? The real change in our criminal justice system is not locking up marijuana users. It's using drug courts that are expanding dramatically to get people into treatment and to help them stay in recovery. Very briefly, last question.
1: A report out in the U.K. last week showed that uh, uh, more dangerous than many of the drugs on our hit list is alcohol. Have we been chasing the wrong drug?
2: Well, I think the United States has a mixed history of alcohol, as you no doubt know. Um, We've... uh uh, decided after a lot of pain, no less a person than Abraham Lincoln gave a speech to a temperance society in, in Illinois before he became president talking about the dangers of alcohol. Alcohol is associated with some crime. Alcohol is associated, obviously, with, uh, with other problems. But, um, you know, we've made a painful decision. We've, we've accepted certain consequences. But uh, for people that then say, well, then we got to legalize all drugs, I don't think that's what follows. We've learned that, you know, we've made a choice that has significant costs. We are trying to control that. We're trying to prevent underage drinking. We're trying to get more people into treatment. We have underage drinking declining as we have cigarette smoking declining, as we have uh, uh, drug use declining. That's good. If we if we don't initiate in the United States during adolescent years, drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, all those studies show you're unlikely to start after age 20, and if you do, you're unlikely to be dependent.
0: Well, if you ask me, John Walters is really starting to sound uh, Rumsfeldian. Is he not? And insofar as all those pot smokers being sent to treatment, well, the truth is pot stinks, and pot smokers get caught pretty often. Next up, we hear from Steve Rolls of the British drug reform organization Transform. Steve, our our drug czar has made it over your way and uh, seems to be creating quite a stir. Uh, Tell us about his appearance and and what you think of of, uh, what he's had to say.
3: We knew he was coming. Some people in the Home Office had let us know that he was on his way over. Um, He spoke at a conference on uh, drug prevention. Um, It was organized, I think, by an organization called European Cities Against Drugs, and it was very much in the mold of some of the more uh, sort of radical, evangelical kind of uh, drug prevention organizations in the States. So they're very opposed to harm reduction concepts, They think that drug law reform is sort of part of some wicked pro-drug conspiracy, and they're very opposed to it. They they oppose anything that vaguely resembles um, a a relaxation of um, heavy-handed enforcement. He was speaking at that conference. Um, Obviously, he got a pretty good reception, and he came out with probably what is very familiar uh, to people in America because he he, he sort of wheeled out all of his usual um, spiel. Uh, he said uh, a, lot of, a lot of sort of uh, reefer madness stuff about cannabis. He came out with uh, a lot of statistics about how cannabis is the biggest problem in the world and it's the single biggest source of young people going into treatment in the States. He came out against supervised injecting rooms and against needle exchanges and against harm reduction generally. So I think basically it was a fairly familiar Walters tirade against progressive public health-led drug policy reform.
0: And, and I see that this morning uh, in The Guardian they're uh, talking about Walters wants to drug test every every kid uh, going to school as well. That's, that's not really that uh, uh, widespread in the U.K., is it?
3: No, I think there's there's, there's there's only one or two schools in the UK that are doing it on a kind of experimental basis. It, it's something that Tony Blair has talked up in the last year or two, but um, it's very much a kind of um, drug war spin. Um, it, it, it's the sort of thing that g- it, it gets the headlines, but obviously m- most people in the drugs field in the UK are opposed to drug testing of school children, random drug testing of school children, on the basis that firstly it's unethical and there are uh, civil rights implications, um, and secondly it's, there's, there's, uh, the evidence base just isn't there, that it's um, an effective way of reducing um, problem drug use. But, but Tony Blair, I mean, he, he, he has a history of sort of tapping into U.S.-style tough uh, war on drugs rhetoric, um, and not least in, in as much as um, in 1998, one of the, the first things that Tony Blair did when he became prime minister was to actually appoint a drug czar in the U.K., um, which unfortunately uh, didn't work out. And the, the, uh, the chap had to retire ignominiously uh, in failure about uh, three or four years later.
0: And, and I, it kind of brings to mind the, uh, the, the mindset of uh, drug testing our kids, drug testing... Uh Uh, adults in the workplace Uh, I don't know if the the, uh, uh, British uh, population knows but the uh, many of the former drug czars uh, tout you know urine testing as well and many of them have stocks uh, in these urine testing companies they I see it as nothing more than just a a great uh, profit uh, maker for these companies
3: yeah I mean that, that doesn 't particularly surprise me and I, I, I mean I think the u s obviously has more issues with with that sort of thing than we do at the u k because drug testing the drug testing industry just isn 't um, as, as big in the u k nor of course is the prisons industry, and that 's another potential source of uh, revenue for corrupt politicians. but um, I think the problem really is that, uh, that that there is this kind of gut level appeal to um, a certain brand of, of tough-talking drug war rhetoric. I mean, a lot of people in the UK, they see um, uh, the drug problem and the prohibition problem is very visible on our streets in certain places. Um, and a lot of the people um, know others who have had problems with drugs and so on. You know, talking tough on that and saying you're going to clamp down and saying we can win this war and so on, it, it does have a certain gut-level appeal. But the problem is that the media doesn't, is, hasn't really critically engaged with, that rhetoric, it hasn't sort of critiqued it, and it's, it's taken organisations like Transform to, to introduce a, an, uh, an element of sophistication and um, uh, science into the, into the d- discourse in the UK. Um, so, I, I mean, I feel we are getting somewhere, but, you know, the absolutely the last thing that we want, you know, political puppets like J- John Walters to come over here and start trying to spread his uh, vile drug policy ideas, In the UK, I mean, he he came out against needle exchanges and he came out against supervised injecting rooms. And, um, you know, in in my view, that's tantamount to having blood on his hands. I mean, those are things that we have mountains of evidence accumulated... from a, a number of countries over a number of years that show very clearly, I mean, I'm talking about peer-reviewed academic research studies that show very clearly that those sort of interventions, harm reduction interventions, have saved tens of thousands of lives, um, both both in terms of um, encouraging safer drug-using practices and in terms of preventing the spread of HIV and hepatitis. And he comes over here and calls them morally dubious. For me, it's, you know, it, 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 some people compare it to, genocide, the way, way um, drug users are treated in America. But um, for him to come over here and, and question um, some of our harm reduction policies and try and stop us putting in place policies that, that prevent drug users from being harmed, I, I I find profoundly offensive, and I wish he would shut up and go home, quite frankly.
0: Well, and I, I wish he would find somewhere besides the United States to go back to. I mean... <laughs> well,
3: Well, unfortunately... <laughs> Um, you, 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 he's yours to keep. He's yours to keep and treasure. <laughs> oh, I mean, we, we certainly don't want him over here. But, I mean, it's just, the worrying thing is that this is, it's just so transparently political. I mean, he brings over his um, ideological, science-free, drug war, uh, drug war ranting. Um, and, and politicians see that it has political appeal. What they don't see is that, um, in terms of uh, its impact, it's a complete disaster. Um, not to mention profoundly unethical, and not to mention um, that it actually causes death. I mean, you know, the, the, the issue of supervised injecting rooms, which actually you have in North America now, albeit in Canada, you know, this is something that was on, big on the agenda in, in the U.K. a couple of months back. Uh, there was a big report came out from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which was one of our sort of uh, leading progressive academic research bodies, um, and, and they, they produced a really excellent report. Um, compiling all the research from across Europe and, and Canada and Australia and all the other places that have, do, have done supervised injection facilities. And they showed very clearly, very clearly, that there were uh, public health benefits in term, for the users in terms of uh, uh, preventing, uh, encouraging safe practice and uh, preventing overdoses. And they also showed very clearly that there was um, social nuisance benefits in terms of reducing injecting use on streets, and reducing drug litter and, and dirty needles in the gutters and so on.
1: And yet again,
3: once again, even though this is about the 10th major report on this that's come landed on Tony Blair's desk, they, they rejected it on, on a series of completely spurious grounds. And it, 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 all, it all comes back to their sort of um, obsession with being tough and not wanting to be accused of being soft um, by taking anything that could be pro, uh, seen as... Um, in any way uh, encouraging, allowing, condoning uh, any kind of drug use, even though there's absolutely no evidence, and again, something the report made very clear, there's no evidence that um, setting up injecting rooms encourages drug use at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's shown that by bringing people into the medical sphere, bringing them into contact with services, you can actually encourage them to get into treatment and uh, actually reduce problematic drug use. But you know, once again, because of this sort of this sort of virus of American drug war ideology that's spread around the world, all, all this perfectly sensible, evidence-based, public health-led policy-making ideas and concepts and analysis just gets rejected. It's been horribly the whole the whole arena has been horrendously politicised by um, by by UN uh, US drug war thinking and the, and their kind of globe-straddling influence over drug policy um, generally. D- translated through the U.N. drug agencies, which obviously the U.S. The US completely dominate. You know, we're, 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 we're pretty angry about this stuff, really. We want to just get on and uh, develop our own drug policies, and we don't, want, we don't want idiots like John Walters barreling on over here, talking rubbish, um, spouting uh, factual inaccuracies, and in some case outright lies, um, and, and, and just, you know, distorting the whole debate. You know, the, the, America's done that with regards to drug policy, for. So, you know, almost a 100 years now, and it's just got to stop. I mean, they're, they're in, in, in drug policy, as in, as in unfortunately, in so many many other areas of foreign policy, U.S. Uh, administration, they're the bullies of the world. They have this kind of hegemonic power over drug, poli- drug policy thinking, and, and, and the, the carnage that that's creating goes far beyond the U.K. It's, it spreads around the world, mainly through um, uh, the U.N. drug agencies that, that help maintain the sort of prohibitionist consensus. Um, but also through the US's own sort of certification system, I mean we're, we're, people in the UK are just fed up to the back teeth of it, but um, uh, you know, unfortunately on, on it goes and here's the drugs are in the UK again even though last time the drugs czar came over, which was in 1999, I believe it was Barry McCaffrey in those days he was basically drummed out the country by protests and people people shouting at him, trying to go home, you know America just has an absolute disaster of a drug policy, huge prison population um, worst drug, drug use rates in, in, in the whole Western world, you know, $40 billion a year being um, hosed down the toilet on, on, on this total disaster of a drug policy in the U.S., and then they've got the gall to come over to Europe and preach to us about how we should do it. It's, it, it absolutely boggles the mind,
0: to be honest. I belong to law enforcement against prohibition, and we believe firmly through experience that if one were to end prohibition, we could stop funding the terrorists, the cartels, the violent gangs. We could cut back on overdose deaths. We could uh, cut back on the uh, instance of HIV, Hep C, and we could take away our children's easy access to drugs. It seems a no-brainer to me. Uh, how does Transform perceive the future? Uh, what are your next steps?
3: Well, I mean, I think you know we've we've been in contact with law enforcement against prohibition for for a long time, and. Um, they're they're, they're very close colleagues and allies of us and I guess our analysis is is probably very similar to to theirs and indeed the rest of the reform movement um, in the US and around the world I mean we see a um, staged reform process that will probably lead I mean what what, what has to happen ultimately is is that the UN conventions that um, enshrine uh, the criminalization of all uh, uh, possession Supply and production of, of certain scheduled drugs; um, th- those those uh, conventions have to be revisited. Um, and basically, I think what will happen is that a coalition of reform-minded countries in Europe, but probably including Canada, um, Australasia, and South America, will, will come together and say these treaties um, were drawn up in an, in a different era when dro- when the profile of drug use was entirely different. They've been shown, they sh- we've shown clearly that the uh, enforcement-led efforts to control the drug problem haven't worked. The drug problem has spiraled out of control. We also have all the secondary problems associated with the legal markets. It's time for a rethink. And we, as individual countries, want the sovereign rights to be able to determine our own drug policies. And uh, that may well include possibilities for uh, legal production, supply and possession Of certain drugs through certain um, legal regulatory frameworks, I think I think that is the way it will go. That probably in about uh, 2015, in 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 over it won't be it won't be 2008 when the 10-year UN strategy comes up for review. But I think 2018 is the date when um, global prohibition will fall because I think you know we we, we had we had we had a, a global strategy in 1998. Um, to have a drug-free world by 2008. And obviously since then, the drug problem's got a lot worse. There's a lot more drug misuse, there's a lot more people taking um, a lot more dangerous drugs, and it's just been a total disaster. And I think we can't live in this kind of... We can't have policy based on a utopian fantasy of a drug-free world. We have to acknowledge that there are drugs in the world, people do use them, and we have to manage that realistically. And I I think the prohibition international consensus is crumbling, and I think probably um, the next round of talks in uh, two thousand and thirteen and two thousand and eighteen will see um, a coalition of, of, of reformed states, including the UK, including uh, probably most of mainland Europe, Canada and Australia, um, either either withdrawing from those treaties or insisting on their redrafting and i 'm sure when that happens the US will dig in its heels and start pushing its weight around. but I, I really no policy can exist for an eternity when it does the exact opposite of what what it's supposed to. So I think that's how we see it unfolding, and and, and that's the kind of long-term strategy we have. We're not not expecting all drugs to be legalized tomorrow. Um, We're we're looking at sort of five, ten-year
0: plan on this. All right. We are speaking with uh, Steve Rolls of the uh, British Drug uh, Policy Group, Transform. Steve, I I understand that uh, there's something in the wind in... Great Britain. People are talking about reclassification, rescheduling of drugs. Uh, how do you see that uh, proceeding?
3: Well, we, we just had a uh, parliamentary select committee. So it's a group of 12 um, members of parliament, uh, equivalent to congressmen or senators in, in the US, who are on the science and technology select committee. So they're independent from government um, and it's a cross-party group. And they produced a rather brilliant report critiquing the scientific basis of um, the drug classification system. Now, the drug classification system in the UK is uh, it classifies drugs as either A, B, or C, and it's very similar to the scheduling system you have in the US. So, I think you have four schedules over there. And in, in the UK, A is the most uh, what, what is seen as the most high. Supposedly, the ABC system ranks drugs according to their harms, um, and then those those uh, rankings are then associated with a hierarchy of criminal penalties. But what the committee found was not only was the actual ranking uh, system uh, riddled with uh, bad science and anomalies, so we had um, certain uh, comparatively low-risk drugs in Class A and comparatively high-risk drugs um, in, in the lower classes, or in the case of alcohol and tobacco, not classified at all. They also found, I think more significantly, that there was no evidence for a deterrent effect Associated with um, this hierarchy of criminal penalties, Um, and and if you think about that, that's incredibly significant. The whole the whole basis of prohibition is that you have these punitive measures will deter people from using these drugs. The the science committee found absolutely no evidence for that at all, Um, and they often found you had sort of perverse effects that you know that the higher the drug, that people actually use the the classification system is like a quality guide you know oh it's class a it must be good <laughs> well I, ironically enough and, and and so they basically they, they took the entire system to pieces not just the the, the base the, the the science in terms of ranking harm but the 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 science you know they challenged the assumptions of the of the entire prohibitionist paradigm and i think in in the uk it was the first time ever really we've had the sort of the light of science pointed at this rather sort of murky area of, politi- of, of policy making. And it was, it was a huge relief, and I think, I think that report's going to have a huge impact, because it really, I mean, it, this was, it was scathing um, of, of the science, of the institutions that allow this bad science to continue, and, and of the h- horrendous politicization of, dr- of drug policy in particular. So it, it was, we, we were very pleased with that report, not least because Transform had, uh, is quoted in that report extensively, and we, we gave both written and oral evidence to the committee. So, so we were very pleased with our role, and we were very pleased with the outcome of that. And I think it's going to be it's a significant shot across the bowels of, of prohibition and, and, and the, the sort of, again, the drug war consensus, which in, in the UK, as with Europe and as with the world, is, is, is crumbling.
0: All right, Steve, um, we're going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, what is the website for Transform?
3: Transform's website is www.transform.com. T-D-P-F. That's, that's the initials for Transform Drug Policy Foundation, tdpf.org.uk, so it's www.tdpf.org.uk. Um, and people can sign up to our, our, our monthly email newsletter. We have a media blog. Uh, we have a, an archive of um, our, our media appearances. We have a whole series of briefings on, on, different, uh, on different topics. Um, and we have a, uh, an archive of quotes from uh, high-profile public figures um, in the UK and around the world who've shown support for drug policy and law reform.
0: Uh, any uh, closing thought?
3: Well, really, just you know, just to encourage uh, your listeners to um, bear in mind that the, the problems with prohibition and the problems with the drug war are global. They're not just restricted to the US. The, what the US does affects the whole world, and what, and what um, the whole world does... Uh, doesn't just affect the sovereign countries and, and cause problems there, but actually, you know, the problems in Afghanistan and Colombia and key producer and transit countries for drugs, th- Those are our, we're responsible for those problems too. So remember this is an international problem um, and uh, we, m- we must all have solidarity together and, and, and fight this together at the global scale as well as at the national scale and, and locally.
0: Be sure to tune in to this week's Century of Lies show where you can hear from Dr. Donald Abrams, Tim Beck of the Michigan Normal Group, and Bruce Merkin of the Marijuana Policy Project. Once again, I remind you that because of drug prohibition, you don't know what's in that bag. Please be careful. To the Drug Truth Network listeners around the world, on behalf of Engineer Philip Guthie, this is Dean Becker for Cultural Baggage and the Unvarnished Truth. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston. Jap dancing on the air to kind of the <laughs>